are back with the Looking Glass Forum, and we are rising together to recover the truth from obscurity and awakening to the sinister forces moving to dismantle our liberties and to collapse the free world. The lies are many, and the truth is one. So we're here today. We're back, taking a look at a couple of interesting topics here. And we'll recap from what we were discussing in the earlier show on episode four. And our previous research has already shown clearly that the Illuminati is connected directly to Hegel, who is connected to Marx. And this is not something that we are supposed to know historically, since these closed associations were conducted covertly, and there are supposed to be issues that are kept secret. But in Hegel's time, we can see that the great terror that broke out in France was a direct consequence of radical, violent revolt incited by the occult associations and illuminated lodges. For instance, the Egyptian lodges were one of the many esoteric initiations which were recruiting acolytes for the Illuminati, and so these outward public lodges and esoteric mystery schools, as it were, served as a front for the masters behind the scenes. And we could already see that even in the 1700s that they had a program for operating in academia. The main center of the activities of the Illuminati were centered around Ingolstadt University in Bavaria, which was a college campus, a university of, of canon law. And we could already see that they had, they were really savvy at using the media of the time. So you can see that Bonneville uh, controlled several illuminated lodges, esoteric schools, and he also controlled several tribunes, which were journals. And also there were there was Minerva magazine, which was written by Illuminists, and all the high Illuminists were receiving Minerva magazine. We were able to follow the history of that, even as it affected the world in Haiti, in the, uh, in the revolt in Haiti, and actually incited a lot of that unrest. And then we go back to how easily the Illuminati was able to take advantage of the racial paradigm in this in-between period in history as we're coming out of the Dark Ages and we're moving in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century into the 18th century, moving forward in history, and the world population is becoming more educated and becoming more aware. Gutenberg's printing press is printing out, Shakespeare is printing out his plays, and the King James Bible is being printed out in mass for, for people to consume in their own homes, and knowledge is proliferated everywhere during this Renaissance period. You can look at the art in Florence, you can look at the outbreak of the science and technology, and so the shadow of the Dark Ages is breaking, and humanity is rising to a new level of awareness. So the slave trade is going on the ash heap of history. And in that place where some of the world is arriving at a conscience about slavery, and in, in many cases, like in the, in the early colonies, in the early states, many Protestant-controlled states in America are going to just outlaw and ban slavery right from the outset. And in other places in the world, slavery still exists, like in San Domingo and in the southern states in America. So in this transition period, the intelligentsia, from Bavaria are able to seize on this moment to create a radical uprising and a violent revolt. And they were able to capitalize on this political unrest and the political unease within the United States to exacerbate the Civil War. We'll look at that more later in later episodes. And we can see that as the French Revolution is, is overturning the, the monarch of France and the streets are being controlled by 
violence, the mobs are burning and looting France, we can see that they are restored to order again under a military dictator, namely Napoleon Bonaparte. The monarchs of Europe are going to try to take advantage of the, the Civil War and French intervention in Mexico during the Civil War between 1862 and 1867. The French Emperor Napoleon III maneuvered to establish a French client state in Mexico and eventually installed Maximilian of Habsburg, Archduke of Austria, as Emperor of Mexico. Stiff Mexican resistance caused Napoleon III to order French withdrawal in 1867. The American Revolution had taken place far away from Europe and far away from powers of the monarchy and the armies of Europe. And the monarchs of the old world in Europe are in a frenzy to bring this heretical Puritan and Baptist Republic of America to ruination. But as if by some divine providence and against all the odds, America still stands. And you have to remember that France had French holdings in the southern area of the North American continent. So later would be the Louisiana Purchase. And so the French were establishing a lot of forces in Mexico, just as the British were trying to marshal their forces north in Canada, and they were preparing themselves to take over big swaths of the continent after the, uh, the American project, the American experiment of free men would ultimately collapse. And as we discussed before, the powerful Russian Navy would remain positioned to defend America on both the East and the West Coast as the, uh, the national body politic within America is engulfed in civil carnage and bloodshed. And it would behoove the, the Tsar to defy the monarchs of Europe, who were many of who were his enemies. And if we look, it was Tsar Alexander II who had a huge conflict with the Jesuits and had actually banned them out of all the Russian territories because they were so political and they were operating with political machinations against his authority and were plotting to overthrow him. And we would see that actually come into fruition later on with Marx and Engels and uh, Trotsky and Lenin who would actually travel to Russia to take advantage of the unrest there and to overthrow the Tsarist regime uh, for good. Just in the same manner that happened to King Louis when, during the Great Terror, when him and Marie Antoinette, the Queen, were guillotined in the streets. It, you can see that it's the intention of the Illuminati to overthrow the current governmental system in order to replace it with one that's more amenable to them. The aristocracy and the European nobility, which sat and in many ways still does sit at the highest echelon of the hierarchy of the medieval world, defied the lowly orders of peasants and unwashed masses of common man who dared to raise a nation-state dedicated to human liberty and individual freedom and freedom of religion. The monarchs knew only autocratic command and control over their subordinated subjects, who were never free to speak or free to publish their own views, nor were they ever free to own firearms or maintain the religious convictions of their own conscience. Thus, America was condemned as a nation of heretics, slaves, and witches by the Jesuit-led Vatican, by the Council of Trent much earlier on, and later on by the Council of uh, the Church Council of Vienna, which occurred much later in history. So we must view the whole scope of human history in order to widen our gaze so we can see the larger puzzle. Who would control religion? Who would control the world order? Who would control the people? Would the revolt of American free men stand? And it might be interesting to point out also that we have long discussed the rather conspicuous statue of Albert Pike as it sat in Washington, D.C. 
for so many long years, and Albert Pike was one of the grand masters of the American Illuminati, and he was the designer of the Palladian Rite, or the High Rite, that ruled over the high 30, 31st, and 32nd degrees of the Scottish Rite, which he was a highly initiated Freemason, and also he was a Confederate general who was responsible for actually putting into place and creating the Ku Klux Klan. So he was one of the founding members as a knight of the Ku Klux Klan and as a, a knight of the Rosy Cross and the Freemason orders, you can see that the theme of knighthood or Templarism is a, a recurrent theme. And we have to understand that to be papal knights. Those are knights who are under the command of the Pope and who serve the purpose of the Pope. And Templarism ultimately is the concerted effort of all the king's men, as it were, or the Pope's knights, to ultimately control the Temple of Solomon, which is in Jerusalem. And it really refers back to the Crusade Wars and the fight against Saladin and the Muslims as they fought to control the Holy Land or to fight the Holy War or to fight the Holy Crusades and control Jerusalem and to take it from the Muslims. Of course, this has been long been their design. And today, you can see that they have a pretty good hold on it. They have brought back the labor Zionist socialist party of Jews to come back and to live in the land. And the, But they also have a, a dialectic in place. So you're going to have to have the land split in two for Muslims and Jews both to call it their homeland. And so it keeps a perpetual agitation and a perpetual conflict in place. And, and so we think that it's obvious that that is by design. And so it stands to reason that the very conspicuous Albert Pike statue was placed there long ago as a forerunner for the chaos that's being created today. And it was situated there to be a very conspicuous target for those who would become educated later on about these matters relevant to the freedom of the slaves. And I think they looked forward and they saw that eventually there would be a social convulsion over the issue of slavery in the past and that it could be utilized just as it was in Haiti and San Domingo to create a revolt. And so they had always kind of sought to create a rivalry and a discontent among peoples. And even the, the writers of the Constitution, the early forefathers, knew that as we approach Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, they knew that when they gave emancipation, that there would be a dilemma in trying to help men step from abject slavery and bondage into the status of free men who would have to be self-sufficient, have to learn to read and write, and to make it on their own and survive by their, their own hard work rather than being under the protection of the plantation masters who had taken care of whether there was sufficient care taken, they had always been taken care of and cared for, almost like you would imagine people who are who are made dependent on food stamps and housing funds and Section 8 financing from government sources, how difficult it would be for them to earn the extra cash to take care of those extra expenses. It's the same kind of dependency. So as, as the, the men who are enslaved are going to be made free, they're going to no longer have, a lot of them are really just going to become paid employees and, and work on the same plantations that they were, were born on. And so the ability for men to develop and rise and to be educated and to teach their children to have generational influence over time so that they could build a successful people in the land. I mean, this is before the idea of blacks and whites being married was ever even coming to be. I mean, obviously Thomas Jefferson had thought of it and found that black women were intelligent and handsome to look at. But on some level, the European populace and the sub-Saharan African populace that was in America at the time would ultimately have to learn how to rectify this master and slave dialectic, as Hegel discussed it. And so that's where we're at today. So I think that it's, it's interesting that the Albert Pike statue was targeted and destroyed, and that 
President Trump said that he would put it right back up again, even though he was a Confederate general who created the KKK, who was a high Illuminati agent and was responsible for building the ranks of Scottish Rite Freemasonry in, in the high degrees that controlled them above the 33rd degree. So, and that was where you would get to the Illuminati. So, let's go ahead and take a look here. I have a very interesting book here. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does the old world order organize itself to influence the structures of self-government and representative democracy? It's not an autocratic command in a republic like that of a monarch, but many votes cast to elect representatives who must vote. The power to rule is diffused, and so we must try to comprehend the influence networks and clandestine movements innovated by the European elite, the Papal Knights, the Illuminati, as we understand that they are all one contingent. So this very fascinating book is called Secrets of the Tomb, Skull and Bones, The Ivy League, and The Hidden Paths of Power by Alexander Robbins in 2002. And if you go on the internet and look on C-SPAN, she does a very interesting in-person discussion of the book, too. And so you can see the video as she discusses the book. And she apparently attended the university at Yale, where the famous Order of Skull and Bones has long resided since the 1800s. So we'll just begin. The Legend of Skull and Bones. Sometime in the early 1830s, a Yale student named William H. Russell, the future valedictorian of the class of 1833, traveled to Germany to study for a year. Russell came from an inordinately wealthy family that ran one of America's most despicable business organizations of the 19th century. Russell and Company was an opium empire. Russell would later become a member of the Connecticut State Legislature, a general in the Connecticut National Guard, and the founder of the Collegiate and Commercial Institute in New Haven. While in Germany, Russell befriended the leader of an insidious German secret society that hailed the Death's Head as its logo. Russell soon became caught up in this group, itself a sinister outgrowth of the notorious 18th century secret society, the Illuminati. When Russell returned to the United States, he found an atmosphere so anti-Masonic that even his beloved Phi Beta Kappa, the Honor Society, had been unceremoniously stripped of its secrecy. Incensed, Russell rounded up a group of the most promising students in his class, including Alfonso Taft, who was the future Secretary of War, Attorney General, Minister to Austria, ambassador to Russia, and father of the future president, William Howard Taft. We might add that William Howard Taft would also go to Yale and become a skull and bonesman. And we continue. And they, out of vengeance, constructed the most powerful secret society that the United States has ever known. The men called their organization the Brotherhood of Death, or more formally, the Order of Skull and Bones. They adopted the numerological symbol 322 because their group was the second chapter of the German organization founded in 1832. They worshipped the goddess Eulogia, celebrated pirates, and plotted an underground conspiracy to dominate the world. Fast forward 170 years. Skull and Bones has curled its tentacles into every corner of American society. This tiny club has set up networks that have thrust three members into the most powerful political position in the world, and the group's influence is only increasing. The 2004 presidential election might showcase the first time each ticket has been led by a bonesman. That was the Bush-Kerry election. Both Bush and John Kerry were skull and bones. The secret society is now, as one historian admonishes, an international mafia, unregulated and all but unknown. In its quest to create a new world order that restricts individual freedoms and places ultimate power solely in the hands of a small cult of wealthy, prominent families, Skull and Bones has already succeeded in infiltrating 
every major research, policy, financial, media, and government institution in the country. Skull and Bones, in fact, has been running the United States for years. Skull and Bones cultivates its talent by selecting members from the junior class at Yale University, a school known for its strange Gothic elitism and its rigid devotion to the past. The society screens its candidates carefully, favoring Protestants and white Catholics with special affection for the children of wealthy East Coast Skull and Bones members. Skull and Bones has been dominated by about two dozen of the country's most prominent families, namely Bush, Bundy, Harriman, Lord, Phelps, Rockefeller, Taft, and Whitney among them, who are encouraged by the society to intermarry so that so that its power is consolidated. In fact, Skull and Bones forces members to confess their entire sexual histories so that the club, as eugenics overlords, can determine whether a new Bonesman will be fit to mingle with the bloodlines of the powerful Skull and Bones dynasties. A rebel will not make Skull and Bones, nor will anyone whose background in any way indicates that he will not sacrifice for the greater good of the larger organization. As soon as initiates are allowed into the tomb, a dark, windowless crypt in New Haven with a roof that serves as a landing pad for the society's private helicopter, they are sworn to silence and told they must forever deny that they are members of this organization. During initiation, which involves ritualistic psychological conditioning, the juniors wrestle in mud and are physically beaten the stage of the ceremony represents their death to the world as they have known it. They then lie naked in coffins, masturbate, and reveal to the society their innermost sexual secrets. After this cleansing, a bonesman, the bonesmen give the initiates robes to represent their identities as individuals with a higher purpose. The society appoints the initiate with a new name, symbolizing his rebirth and rechristening as Knight X a member of the order. It is during this initiation that new members are introduced to the artifacts in the tomb. Among them, there is Nazi memorabilia, including a set of Hitler silverware, dozens of skulls, and an assortment of decorative tchotchkes, coffins, skeletons, and innards. They are also introduced to the Bones Whore, the tomb's only full-time resident, who helps to ensure the Bonesmen leave the tomb more mature than when they entered. Members of Skull and Bones must make some sacrifices to the society, and they are threatened with blackmail so that they remain loyal. But they are remunerated with the honors and rewards, including a graduation gift of $15,000 and a wedding gift of a tall grandfather clock. Though they must tie their estates to the society, each member is guaranteed financial security for life. In this way, Bones can ensure that no member will feel the need to sell the secrets of the society in order to make a living. And it works. No one has publicly breathed a word about his Skull and Bones membership ever. Bonesmen are automatically offered jobs at the many investment banks and law firms dominated by their secret society brothers. They are also given exclusive access to the Skull and Bones Island, a lush retreat built for millionaires with lavish mansion and a bevy of women at the member's disposal. The influence of the cabal begins at Yale, where Skull and Bones has appropriated university funds for its own use, leaving the school virtually impoverished. Skull and Bones corporate shell, the Russell Trust Association, owns nearly all of the Yale University's real estate, as well as most of the land in Connecticut. Skull and Bones has controlled Yale's faculty and campus publications so that students cannot speak openly about it. Year by year, 
the campus's only anti-society publication, which is called Year by Year, stated during its brief tenure in 1873, the deadly evil is growing. The year in the tomb at Yale instills within members an unwavering loyalty to Skull and Bones. Members have been known to stab their Skull and Bones pins into their skin, keep them in place during swimming or bathing. The Knights, as the student members are called, learn quickly that their allegiance to the society must supersede all else. Family, friendships, country, God. They are taught that once they get out into the world, they are expected to reach positions of prominence so they can further elevate the society's status and help promote the standing of their fellow Bonesmen who will come after them. This purpose has driven Bonesmen to ascend to the top levels of so many fields that as one historian observes, at any one time, the order can call on members in any area of American society to do what has to be done. Several Bonesmen have been senators, congressmen, Supreme Court justices, cabinet officials. There is a bone cell in the CIA, which uses the society as a recruiting ground because the members are so obviously adept at keeping secrets. Society members dominate financial institutions such as J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, Brown Brothers Harriman, where at one time more than a third of the partners were Bonesmen. Through these companies, Skull & Bones provided financial backing to Adolf Hitler because the society then followed a Nazi and now follows a neo-Nazi doctrine. At least a dozen Bonesmen have been linked to the Federal Reserve, including the first chairman of the New York Federal Reserve. Skull & Bones members control the wealth of the Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Ford Foundations. Skull & Bones has also taken steps to control the American media. Two of its members founded the law firm that represents the New York Times, and plans for both Time and Newsweek magazine were actually hatched in the Skull & Bones tomb. The society has controlled publishing houses such as Farrar, Strauss, and Giro. In the 1880s, Skull & Bones created the American Historical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Economic Association, and the American Medical Association, so that the society could ensure that the history would be written under its terms and promote its objectives. The society then installed its own members as the presidents of these associations. Under the society's direction, Bonesmen developed and dropped the nuclear bomb, choreographed the Bay of Pigs invasion, Skull and Bones members had ties to Watergate, the Kennedy assassination. They controlled the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, so that they can push their own political agenda. Skull and Bones government officials have used the number 322 as codes for highly classified diplomatic assignments. The society discriminates against minorities and fought for slavery. Indeed, eight out of 12 of Yale's residential colleges are named for slave owners while none are named for abolitionists. The society encourages misogyny. It did not admit women until the 1990s because members did not believe women were capable of handling the Skull and Bones experience and because they said they feared incidents of date rape. This society also encourages grave robbing. Deep within the bowels of the tomb are the stolen skulls of Apache Chief Geronimo, Pancho Villa, and former President Martin Van Buren. Finally, the society has taken measures to ensure that the secrets of Skull and Bones slip ungraspable like the sand through open fingers. Journalist Ron Rosenbaum, who wrote a long but not very probing article about the society in the 1970s, claimed that a source warned him not to get too close. What bank do you have your checking account at? This party asked him in the middle of the discussion of the Mithraic aspects of Skull and Bones ritual. I named the bank. Aha, said the party. There are three Bonesmen on the board. You'll never have a line of credit again. They'll tap your phone. And he continues, the source continued, the alumni still care. Don't laugh. 
they don't like people tampering and prying. The power of bones is incredible. They've got their hands on every level, on every lever of power in the country. You'll see it's like trying to look into the mafia. In the 1980s, a man known as Steve had contracts to write two books on the society using documents and photographs he had acquired from the Bones crypt, but Skull and Bones found out about Steve. Society members broke into his apartment, stole the documents, harassed the would-be author, and scared him into hiding, where he has remained ever since. Books were never completed. Universal Pictures Thriller, The Skull is 2000, an aspiring journalist is writing a profile of the Society for the New York Times. When he sneaks into the tomb, the skull is murdering. The real Skull and Bones tomb displays a bloody knife in a glass case. It is said that when a bonesman stole documents and threatened to publish secrets, the members did not pay him a determined amount of money. They used that knife to kill him. This, then, is the legend of Skull and Bones. So it really is a very interesting book here. It goes on to discuss later in the book that during the initiation, they line up the different initiates by their stature, their height, from tallest to shortest, and this plays a role in the in the ritual. And one of the one of the bonesmen who is already a graduate and is performing the initiation for the new arrivals, the junior class. And here I'm quoting one of the bonesmen clad in a devil's costume lies in wait, and the four brawniest knights serve as shakers, who in early times may have worn only jock straps and sneakers, and a knight with a deep voice dons a Don Quixote costume, and another senior dressed as the Pope sits in a chair with his slippered foot resting on a large skull, and the initiates, it goes on to say, the initiates take turn, kneeling down and kissing the slippered foot of the Pope. And that is a very interesting detail that she includes in here that must not be overlooked and we have to say that in a lot of occult circles it's well known that don quixote represents the superior general of the society of jesus you might remember that don quixote does play an interesting role in the movie the ninth gate which is an occult movie and we, all, we might also point out at this point that skull and bones really represents the junior initiation into the Knights of Malta. And it's not difficult to look on the internet and look up a chart, the structure of Freemasonry, and you can see that it shows both sides of the steps, the Scottish Rite side and also the York Rite side, which has nine degrees. And at the very top, the eighth degree is called the Order of Knights of Malta. And so you can see that these initiations, whether through Skull and Bones or whether through the York Rite Lodge or the Scottish Rite Lodge at the highest degrees are really knighthood orders. And at that point, you're not only entering a degree within a club named Knights of Malta, but you're actually entering the order of the Knights of Malta as an actual papal knight. And as we continue here, I might just point out that these are not our words uh, that we were discussing earlier. These are the words of, of the author. And so we're discussing different authors. We'll be looking at the history of the Order of Skull and Bones from different angles. So we have to kind of take into consideration the author's perspective as we move forward. And it seems as though the Order has many, like the author said, there could be upwards of 500. There's really no way of knowing exactly how many active members of Skull and Bones are in play today because their their records and their membership lists are not exactly public. We currently have at least one known Skull and Bonesman in the Trump administration, that's Stephen Mnuchin, and he went to Yale and was well known to be a member of Skull and Bones. 
and he's the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, I believe. So we're going to take an, a look also at another rather famous book that's virtually unknown, and it, it, it's an in-depth critical exposure of this radical group of provocateurs. Skull and Bones is a quintessential power group operating in secret, which yields incredible influence, and would be the quintessential secret society orchestrated as a mainline change agent within the federal government for nearly 200 years. The veil of secrecy surrounding the order is so complete that even today very few know anything substantive about the group. And very recently, the now famous Order of Skull and Bones took in the first female initiate, leading many to speculate that the order is now merely a relic of its former strength, an empty shell of its original epic sweeping power within the federal government and most prominently within the CIA. And of course, famously, the, the George Bush, John Kerry election was a typical skull and bones election where both the candidates, though they appeared to be in opposition parties to the ignorant population of voters who genuinely believed they represented divergent political views, they were really, in reality, both skull and bones initiates or Bonesmen, which is the moniker they call one another. The widely acclaimed movie called The Good Shepherd depicts this power group in great detail. And, and I advise you watch it if you're interested in the subject. It's pretty good. We're going to take a look at Anthony Sutton's work after this, but right now I want to also do a little section here. This is another book, Inside Secret Societies, What They Don't Want You to Know, by Michael Benson. does a little write-up here which I think is just fascinating. So you go to the section Skull and Bones, and I'll start to uh, read here. Yale's Skull and Bones is a super secret society whose members include one of the most powerful men in the world, including George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, and whose initiation rites involve nude wrestling and lying in a coffin in only underwear and recounting adolescent sexual experiences. These rites take place in a windowless tomb within the Skull and Bones mausoleum-like meeting house on the Yale campus. It sounds silly, but the influence of the group is anything but that. Members of Skull and Bones are called Bonesmen. Only 15 new members are inducted each year. Among the early influential Bonesmen were the sons of railroad magnate Edward H. Harriman, William Averill, who joined in 1913, Edward Roland Noel, who joined in 1917, the elder President Bush's father, Prescott Bush, also became a Bonesman in 1917, Bonesman McGeorge Bundy, who joined in 1940, and national was national security advisor to President John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, as well as the president of the Ford Foundation from 1966 to 1979. Later members have included Frederick Smith, the founder of Federal Express, Richard Pershing, the grandson of General John J. Pershing, who was killed during the Tet Offensive and the Vietnam War. Many Bonesmen have gone on to become officials for the Central Intelligence Agency. Skull and Bones began in 1832 at Yale University, so we'll go on to page 194. Though more than 170 years old, there have been fewer than 2,000 Bonesmen in total. Its founders were Alfonso Taft, General William Huntington Russell. Taft was the father of William Howard Taft, who was also a Bonesman and the only man to serve both as President of the United States and as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Alfonso Taft served as, a, as Secretary of War and Attorney General under the President Ulysses S. Grant. He also served as U.S. Minister, as the, which is an ambassadorship title, to Austria-Hungary and Russia also under President Chester Arthur. The Tafts of Cincinnati, Ohio, were not a religious family. If pressed, the family said that they were Unitarian, which merged various parts of different religions. General Russell came from one of Boston's most respected families and served with the Connecticut legislature. The Russells, it is said, initially 
made their fortune in the slave trade, and later on by smuggling opium into the country. I'll just make a side note here that during that time, the Russells made, made money smuggling opium into China, and it was the first and second opium wars, Mandarin China. So just keep that in mind. That's where the, all the opium smuggling was taking place. So back to the, the text here. The Russells, it is said, initially made their fortune in the slave trade and by smuggling opium into the country, which is the reason the new secret society adopted the pirate symbol, the skull and crossbones. Although the use of the symbol can be found in secret societies long before this, the birth of skull and bones or the Russell family's businesses, the pirate symbol was used as the flag of the Knights Templar. It has been suggested that the Skull and Bones chapter opened at Yale in 1832 was merely a new chapter of a pre-existing society in Germany, the German Illuminati, or in other words, Bavarian Illuminati. So back to the text. Many of the Skull and Bones initial rituals and symbols are similar to those of Freemasonry. Although Skull and Bones does not officially exist, it was incorporated in 1856 under the name Russell Trust. Not all of the group's Thursday and Sunday meetings take place on the Yale campus. Some meetings of Skull and Bones are said to be held at Deer Island, which is in the St. Lawrence River. And he goes on to say that the S is is not in the word island, so it's spelled Deer Island, I-L-A-N-D. The S was left out of the word island for unknown reasons at the request of the Bones member. So if you're trying to do a little research on Deer Island, it's uh, Deer Island without an S. To become a member, you have to be a junior at Yale University. Each year, only 15 new members are chosen. New members are called Knights. Older members are called Patriarchs after they've graduated. Although there are hundreds of living members, only about 30 different families are represented. Obviously, the proper breeding is a key factor in being chosen as a member. According to Ron Rosenbaum, a New Yorker observer columnist who wrote about in Esquire magazine, you get the feeling that there's a lot of intermarriage between these Bones families. Year after year, there will be a Whitney Townsend Phillips in the same Bones class as a Phelps Townsend Whitney. In fact, one could make the half-serious case that functionally Bones serves as a kind of ongoing informal establishment eugenics project, which leads to the question, is there an aristocracy in the United States? Did the American Revolution really deliver us from the domination of nobility? Not necessarily. According to Gary Boyd Roberts of the New England Historic Genealogical Society, 19 U.S. presidents have descended from Edward III. Bonesman George W. Bush, leader of the free world, can trace his heritage back to Charlemagne and Alfred the Great. Rosenbaum, who lived next door to the Skull and Bones tomb during his years at Yale, goes on to say, What Skull and Bones does is take preppy Prince Hal's and gives them a sense of mission. Rosenbaum is referring to the carefree Shakespeare character who goes on to become the heroic Henry V. One Bones ritual involves kissing a skull. Rosenbaum says the ritual emphasizes a sense of mortality, that life is short and you have a mission to make something of your life. According to conspiracy theorist and sometimes politician Lyndon LaRoche, Skull and Bones is not merely a fraternity, no special alumni association and added mumbo-jumbo. It is very serious, very dedicated cult conspiracy against the U.S. Constitution. Like the Cambridge Apostles, the initiate to the Skull and Bones is a dedicated agent of British intelligence for life. Bonesmen, who are also part of the Council on Foreign Relations, 
constitute a secret society inside a secret society. And it is said that the bones have been yield a, a real power in the CFR. Apparently, one of the matters of foreign policy of great interest to Skull and Bones is China. Since the U.S. developed a relationship with China during the Nixon administration, many of the U.S. ambassadors to the country have been bonesmen, including the elder George Bush. Some feel this is because the huge amount of opium China produces. So we'll just leave it there, and we'll go on to take a look at Anthony Sutton after the break. All right, so we're back here after our little break here at Looking Glass Forum, and we're discussing the occult power group Skull and Bones, and a lot of people have never heard of that. It's a fascinating subject. So I want to leave you with a lot of these details. And as we're reading both these authors, so we're reading excerpts earlier from Alexander Robbins' book. And um, or just now we read um, some excerpts from Inside Secret Societies by Michael Benson. And so when you compare these two authors' work, you can see that they're looking, they, maybe they've never met, but they're having to go back into the historical record and do their research and come up with the facts. And so as you compare the two authors, you can start to see overlaid, the, you get a really good definition of what is actually happening there. So we have to move on uh, to an important, maybe more obscure author, definitely a more of an, ac an academic, and who was one of the ones to originally bring out the whole discussion about Skull and Bones in 1983, out into the light of day. And most of these later authors are going to draw from Anthony C. Sutton's books. And if you go on YouTube, even though sometimes they get taken down a lot, you can see Anthony Sutton's interviews. He does some really interesting interviews. And he goes into the depth as a researcher and really untangles what is happening with Skull and Bones. So it's not enough to just know that they went to Yale and that they joined the Skull Order of Skull and Bones. But you have to follow their lives and their trajectory of their careers and to see what Skull and Bones is actually achieving as a group. So we have this nice little write-up here I want to take a look at. It's kind of a review of Anthony C. Sutton's America's Secret Establishment and Introduction Order of Skull and Bones. This, again, was 1983. So we're going to do a little review of the book. And it has this pre-write-up here. And this is by uh, Rolf Kenneth Aristos, and he does a nice breakdown. And I'm going to start to read. When Anthony C. Sutton worked on America's Secret Establishment, he at last found the answers to many of the puzzles in his earlier books, in which he had documented highly unpatriotic and quote-unquote suicidal behavior on behalf of the U.S. government in their support and development of Marxist Soviet and Nazi Germany. Thus, after 16 books and 25 years of basic research, he considered this book to be his most important, his magnum opus. And it shows a nice picture here of Anthony C. Sutton, General William Huntington Russell, 1809-1885, and Alfonso Taft, 1810-1891, father of the 27th U.S. President, founded in 1832 at Yale University, the Secret Society, the Order of Skull and Bones, otherwise known as the Order. In 1876, there was a break-in in their temple. A pamphlet was found and published. The pamphlet had some information about the Order's origins, and this is one of the excerpts from that pamphlet. Bones is a chapter of a corps in a German university. It should properly be called not Skull and Bones Society, but Skull and Bones Chapter. General Russell, its founder, was in Germany before his senior year and formed a warm friendship with a leading member of a German society. He brought back with him to college authority 
to found a chapter here. Thus, Bones was founded. We know that General Russell went to Germany to study at the university in 1831-1832. And we might point out here that this was the same year uh, when Hegel had died. So it was it was in this early period of the 1830s when Georg Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel, the famous author, would die and have a, a funeral, a somewhat elaborate, uh, celebrated, a highly uh, highly publicized funeral. So he uh, Russell was traveling to Germany at this time when he made this important trip to Germany at the same time, coinciding with the funeral and the death of the following year of Hegel. So it's important to point that out. So we go back to the text. The German society certainly seems to have been inspired by some of the core ideas of the former Order of the Illuminati, 1776-1785. to We don't have to assume more affinity between the two orders than that. The Order of Skull and Bones is outwardly nothing more than a college fraternity, to which each year precisely 15 males, students in their senior year, are invited. If they accept the invitation and go through with the initiation ritual, they become knights for the rest of their senior year, and afterwards they become lifelong members and patriarchs. The initiation ritual has some Masonic death, rebirth, and, and or satanic light features. The students must lie naked in the coffin. The patriarchs are wearing skeleton suits and behave as possessed lunatics. Real human skulls and bones are used in the ritual, maybe some satanic paraphernalia. The purpose of the ritual is apparently to create a strong bonding between the members and brainwashed loyalty to the order. The college fraternity aspect of the order is just serving as a recruiting center. The real purpose of the order is concerned with the future of the postgraduates after they leave Yale. The patriarchs have annual meetings at Deer Island, and the Russell Trust Association is run entirely by patriarchs. Each member receives a thick black leather-bound book where all the members, both dead and alive, back to 1833, are listed. Out in the society, the initiates are supposed to help one another and their carriers, but their most important job is their mission to help to transform the American culture and society, indeed the whole world, towards what Sutton has chosen to call the New World Order. This New World Order will be totalitarian, the state will be absolute and supreme, the individual will have no imminent value. This totalitarian view of the ideal relationship between the state and the individual is based on the works of the obscure German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. We're just speaking about him. 1770 to 1831. So that, that was the year in 1831 when he died, and that was exactly the time uh, the following year when Russell would travel to Germany, uh, spend a year in going to school there and come back to Yale, and that's when Skull and Bones would begin. The ideas of Hegel pervade the order. Since their totalitarian view is clearly against the U.S. Constitution, such a society would, under normal circumstances, be judged illegal in the U.S., hence their work must be done in secret. Since 1833, active membership has evolved into a core group of perhaps 20 to 30 families. It goes on to reiterate here what we said before that they had founded the American Medical Association in 1847, the National Education Association in 1857, the American Historical Association in 1884, the American Economic Association in 1885, the American Psychological Association in 1892. And so it goes on to say the order achieved control over the Yale University by 1870. They managed to transform or pervert academic psychology 
modern educational theory. John Dewey is involved, economics, history, and several other subjects by basing them on the Hegelian State Supreme Foundation. So it goes on to say the Hegelian foundation of these subjects means that the focus is not on individual freedom or on the development of talents and the ability to think and act independently, but to be in the cog in the wheel, to be able to learn how to just serve your part, to go along if you want to get along, quote-unquote. The CIA recruits agents and operators from this order, and some have considered the order to be the cradle of the CIA. According to Sutton, the order has not only been successful in the destruction of American culture, but also in orchestrating world history by the application of the Hegelian dialectical process. This process is well known among intellectuals and students of European philosophy, and it goes like this. A thesis, or A force, always produces or results in antithesis, or B force. This conflict between two results in a th- synthesis creates an outcome called C-force. The synthesis is identical with the new synthesis, and in this way, the dialectical process goes on. It's kind of a confusing way to break it down, but it's, in other words, using two two extremes and and causing them to clash with one another and to use the destruction in that process as creative a creative process to create an outcome that you want to control. The application of the Hegelian dialectical process takes this form. If you have sufficient control over both force B and force A, you can intensify the conflict between them and then direct this conflict or war towards a synthesis, which in reality is what you wanted to achieve in the first place. In real life, the masterminds behind the scheme may not only achieve the desired outcome, They will also make huge profits by the industrialization and financing the needs of both parties during the conflict of the war. So in the aftermath of the war, both parties will have suffered great losses. The masterminds will be more powerful than ever. Of course, in order to manipulate the world events in this way, the new world order plotters have to be an extremely powerful hidden player in the global chess game, and they will need the very best intelligence organizations and networks to work for them. Once the world has unmasked them, they will become an ordinary visual player like the others. So we'll just drop down here. Sutton writes in 1983, college textbooks present war and revolution as more or less accidental results of conflicting forces. The decay of political negotiation into physical conflict comes about, according to these books, after valiant efforts to avoid war. Unfortunately, this is nonsense. War is always a deliberate, creative act by individuals. Western textbooks also have gigantic gaps. For example, after World War II, the tribunals set up to investigate Nazi war criminals were careful to censor any materials recording Western assistance to Hitler. By the same token, Western textbooks on Soviet economic development omit any description of the economic and financial aid given to the 1917 revolution and subsequent economic development by the Western firms and banks. Revolution is always recorded as a spontaneous event by the political and economically deprived against an autocratic state. Never in the Western textbooks will you find out the evidence that revolutions need financing and the source of the finance, in many cases, traces back to Wall Street and Skull and Bones. Consequently, it can be argued that our Western history is every bit as distorted, censored, and largely useless as that of Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union or Communist China. No Western foundation will award grants to investigate such such topics. Few Western academics can survive by researching such theses, and certainly no major publisher will easily accept manuscripts reflecting such arguments. In fact, there is another largely unrecorded history, and it tells a story quite different than our 
sanitized textbooks. He tells a story of the deliberate creation of war, the knowing finance of revolution to change governments, and the use of conflict to create a new world order. One application, and so now that, that was the end of the quote for Anthony Sutton. It goes on with the review. One application of the dialectic process was to build up both Marxist Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, and then to instigate a war between them. Two banking firms served as a central connection between the order and the establishment and the Marxist Soviets. On the one hand, the Nazi Germany on the other. Chase National Bank, dominated by the Rockefellers since 1930, and Brown Brothers Harriman Company, dominated by the Harriman and Bush families. The synthesis of World War II was the United Nations. So after they were able to use communism and Nazism to clash with one another, of course, the outcome was the United Nations, a step towards a totalitarian one-world order. After World War II, the two dialectic arms were capitalism and the Marxist Soviet Union. So you had the United States on one hand, and you had the Soviet Union on the other hand, and there was the Cold War, and there was the, the Berlin Wall, for instance. So there was the dialectic process in place. Since Sutton has documented these conspiracy facts in his earlier books, the focus of America's secret establishment 1983 was to establish that Skull and Bones have had the central role in this chess game. Sutton goes on to write some more here in his book, quote unquote, the previously described official Harriman biography suggests that Avril, that William Avril Harriman, given his decades on the political inside, must be well aware of the dependence of the Soviet Union on Western technology, that the Soviet Union can make no economic process without Western enterprise technology. In fact, Stalin himself told Harriman as much back in 1944. Here's an extract from a report by Ambassador Harriman in Moscow to the State Department, dated June 30th, 1944. And, it's, and it goes on to say, quote-unquote, Stalin paid tribute to the assistance rendered by the United States to Soviet industry before and during the war. He said that about two-thirds of all the large industrial enterprises in the Soviet Union had been built with United States help or technical assistance. Stalin could have added that the other one-third of the Soviet industry had been built by the British. In brief, Harriman knew firsthand back in 1944 at least that the West had built the Soviet Union through Western financing and Wall Street. Now examine Harriman's official biography and its string of appointments relating to NATO. Mutual Security Agency, State Department, Foreign Policy, and so on. In these posts, Harriman actively pushed for a military buildup of the United States, but if the Soviet Union was seen to be an enemy in 1947, then we had no need to build a massive defense. What we should have done was cut off technology and cut off their technological development. There was no Soviet technology. There was no infrastructure development whatsoever. And Harriman knew there was no Soviet technology available. Furthermore, Harriman has been in the front line of the cry for more trade with the Soviet Union. Trade is the transfer vehicle for technology. In other words, Harriman has been pushing two conflicting policies at the same time. A buildup of Soviet power by export of our technology to them, and a Western defense against the buildup of that power. Isn't this the Hegelian dialectic? Thesis versus antithesis, and the conflict which leads to a new synthesis? So we're getting, that's the uh, end of the quote on that. So we're getting into the kind of the, the nuts and bolts here. But I'm leaving all this information available for you to, to, uh, to research yourself. So it comes down to being a matter of understanding that creating conflict 
as a way of moving forward and advancing their agenda. So the exposure of Skull and Bones and Sutton's work is really explosive, and the truth of the matter is that no one really has any idea that the information is really out there, that the exposure has taken place. And it really goes into great detail in explaining how the Wall Street bankers, led by the members of the Skull and Bones, financed both Hitler and Stalin, and then built up the military-industrial complex in the United States in order to defend against that armament. And we have to recognize that this kind of triangulation and destructive financing and financing both sides of a conflict are pretty typical. And if you go back into European history, you can see that that takes place quite often. Um, we can discuss later on about how it happened with Napoleon. And it was normal for big banking agencies, perhaps uh, the Rothschilds are most famous for financing both the North and the South in the Civil War. And the, the calculation is pretty simple. Whatever side wins you have them in your debt, and if the other side loses and you finance them also, then everything they have is now bankrupted and and you own it by mere fact that you finance them and once they collapse, then you own all their assets. So you end up owning the synthesis. So if you have side A and side B and you push them both together, then in the end you end up with everything. We need to recognize that the old order the old medieval order and the old European nobility and aristocracy were not going to simply give over the American Revolution and the American colonies to us. The whole scope of the subject matter is complex, and the fields of influence are geopolitical, and they run through many areas of our lives. And the velocity of the progression of history will not hesitate for us to catch up or give us a chance to catch our breath. And it will not give us a head start so that we can do a Google search to get it caught up on the background events. We must be decisive. We must have full orientation before the battle suddenly arrives to catch us unaware and unprepared. America is the free world. In this land, we have captured the lands and the dominions of our previous lords and masters and the kings of Europe. They are in England, and his predecessor now looks on from the same throne. The queen, even at this hour, prepares to hand the reins of state to a new king, and the struggle for human liberty has never been more exaggerated. The Constitution laid as the foundation for this great nation by men long ago expresses their intention to create a land and a world for their children where they would be free. And in doing so, they would have set this American Revolution in perpetual war for human liberty, and the cause is ours today. It's a philosophical conflict at which we cannot relent. Whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we shrink from it or not, the masters of the old world order, the aristocracy of Europe, and the nobility with peerages that are ancient are overlords who are the global elite, the cap captains of industry, members of the orders of all the papal knights, whose legacy spans five centuries back, initiates of today's hidden combinations of Jesuit priests and Illuminati agents. They have long set themselves against this American Republic and have prepared for generations to make an epic ruin of us, and we as a nation are blind to the danger. So that's the end of episode five. I hope that you'll come back with us, and we have a lot more to get through. See you next time.